Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the middle of a sermon series this summer on Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer, and we studied um, the, the truth and the fact that, that, that there is a blessing that, of belonging to God. That, that before time began, God had a people that belonged to him. And at the right time, God the Father sent the Son into the world so that Jesus may intercede for us by giving his life for us. Now, today we look at how Jesus continues to intercede for us. In our text, Jesus is praying for those first disciples. He interceded on their behalf um, uh, with his Father in heaven. Now, Do you know what Jesus is praying for? What is it that Jesus wants for these first disciples and now for us present-day disciples too? Let's find out together. Our passage is John 17, verses 9 through 13. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stay forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, it is true, your word gives life. Um, these words are special and true. We see into the very heart of heaven itself with regards to us, your people. Uh, may the blessing of this word overflow into our lives. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom and insight as we ponder these truths together. Amen. You know, one thing that delights me is when someone says to me, Hey, Mark, uh, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for your family. I've been praying for your sermon prep. I've been praying for your ministry. Having people intercede uh, for me excites me. It delights me. How about you? If we're pleased to have other Christians pray for us, how much more so should it delight us that Jesus, our Savior, intercedes for us too? In our passage, Jesus prays for those first disciples. And it is also a picture of his care for all the disciples that will eventually follow. See, Jesus is no longer physically with us, but Scripture tells us that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for all who belong to him. And so this prayer does something wonderful for us. It it opens up a window into the very heart of God himself. And and as we look at this prayer, my hope is that you're able to gain a big understanding of what you mean to Jesus. See, the words that he says to his heavenly Father allow us to feel Jesus' great affection for us. 
Oh, that we would not miss this reality. Jesus' disciples then and Jesus' disciples now mean the world to him. And it is with this deep affection for us that he prays. Remember, Jesus is praying out loud. He prays so that the disciples can hear him. See, he wants his fearful, anxious, weak disciples to hear how much they mean to him and his father. And he wants them to know how much divine care is now afforded them. And the disciples witness Jesus' love and passion and his commitment and his power. So today's sermon is titled, When the Son of God Prays for You. As we investigate this topic, I think we'll be humbled and amazed and filled with joy. We'll divide our time under three headings. First, the reason, then the request, and lastly, the result. So let's begin. The reason. You know, verse 11 states the plain and simple reason why Jesus is praying for his disciples. Well, the 12 minus Judas, who has already gone to betray Jesus. What we read there is Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Remember, Jesus is using the the past tense, I am no longer in the world, because in his mind, he has already consecrated himself for dying on the cross. He is no longer in the world in the sense of ministry. His, His preaching days are over. In less than three hours, Judas will betray Jesus with a kiss. In another 12 hours, Jesus will be led to the cross where he dies. And within another three days, hallelujah, Jesus will rise from the dead. And then in another 40 days, he will ascend back into heaven. So the hour has come. There is no turning back. He is leaving this world, and the disciples he loves will be without his physical presence. And check this out. They will be given this monumental task of proclaiming the gospel everywhere and of building this church from scratch and spreading the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus' prayer right here is meant to assure the disciples that they are in good hands. Now, did you notice in verse 9 that Jesus, he makes a statement. It tends to confound Christians. He says... I am praying for them, them, the 11 disciples. And then he says, I am not praying for the world. You know, it can, it can be hard to understand. It sounds harsh. You know, what is going on here? Why is Jesus only praying for his followers and not praying for the whole world? Well, first, remember, this, is, this prayer is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. The priestly ministry in ancient Israel required two essential tasks. One we're familiar with, of course, which is the offering of a blood sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And the second is that the priest would would intercede in prayer on behalf of God's people. So both atoning sacrifice and prayer were the high priest's duty. They went together. And so in the same way that the high priest in ancient Israel would pray only for the people of God and not for the people outside of the covenant, like, say, the Philistines. So, too, Jesus prays only for those who belong to the covenant people of God. And at that time, it was a short list. Soon the list would grow, though. 
Later in this very prayer, Jesus says he isn't just praying for the disciples, but for everyone who will come to believe through their word. People like Stephen and Paul and Lydia and that Philippian jailer. And eventually, yes, people like you and me. So the focus of Jesus' prayer is upon those who belong to God. Jesus prays particularly for, for his people. And understand this, Jesus continues to intercede for you and me particularly. It is one of the great privileges of belonging to God. The Son continuously intercedes for us. Remember Paul's words from Romans chapter 8? It was in, earlier in our liturgy. He writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Listen, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, do you see what a great privilege we have? Your divine Savior continuously intercedes on your behalf. So that's a quick look at the reason. Now for the request. By praying this prayer out loud, this request, before the disciples, Jesus wanted them to be assured of the special care and protection that, that they enjoyed from Jesus while he was physically present on earth would continue on after his departure. Basically, Jesus is saying, Father, as I return to you, keep these disciples whom I love in your name just as I kept them in your name while I was with them. Jesus is solidifying in their minds and ours what the blessed, that the blessed watchful care of Jesus for his disciples will not end nor be interrupted. Our Father, who has numbered every single hair on our heads and for whom not a single sparrow will fall to the ground apart from his sovereign will and power, he will keep us. Jesus' request is meant to to calm and assure his disciples that even though he's leaving them, the Father who sent him will certainly keep them just as Jesus had kept them, which leads to the big question, so how did Jesus keep them? Look at verse 12. He says, he prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that all that the Father has given him, he has kept and guarded, and he's not lost a single one except for Judas, who wasn't really one of them after all. Jesus said, he kept them in your name. Now, we we discussed this a little bit last week, what what it means to be in the Father's name, so I won't go into a whole lot of details, but to be kept in the Father's name uh, means the disciples grew in faith and in knowledge of God, Uh, concerning his character, his plan for the world, what what it means to be loved for and and cared by, um, by the Father for all eternity. And so they grew in knowledge and faith as Jesus helped them to understand that with God as your heavenly Father, you need not worry about things that people in the world worry about, like things like food and clothing and and super fast Wi-Fi. With your heavenly Father keeping you in his name, you can now reject Storing up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and instead store up treasure in heaven. And so the longer the disciples walked with Jesus, the more and deeper they came to be kept in the Father's name.
And understand this also. There was much grace that was afforded these first disciples as Jesus kept them. In fact, Jesus said, I have guarded them. I think a great example of Jesus guarding the disciples was after Peter pridefully said he would never leave Jesus in his darkest hour. But Jesus knew better. And here is what he told Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. A couple quick points. I mean, it appears that Simon uh, Peter was clueless to the threat that Satan posed to him. But Jesus neutralized that threat as he interceded for Peter without Peter even knowing that Jesus was guarding him from the attack of the enemy. Which brings to the surface an important question as it impacts us today. Did the disciples know and feel like they were being kept and guarded by Jesus? I think we like to think, of course they knew all the time. But I I think the answer is not always. There are a number of occasions, but one that comes to mind is the time when Jesus fed the 4,000, the big multitude, from just a few loaves of bread and a couple fishes. This was after he'd already fed 5,000, not too long before. And you remember how just, just right after that, the disciples sailed across the lake. But when they were in the boat, they realized they forgot to pack a lunch. And they got anxious, thinking they would not have any food. Our Lord rebuked them for their lack of understanding. They should have known, right, (laughs) that Jesus would keep them and care for them. So I think the answer is that the disciples were being kept and guarded by Jesus all the time, but they did not really understand the full extent of it. And so they were often fearful and anxious. Sounds like us today too, doesn't it? We delight in God, and yet we're so often unaware of just how God is keeping and guarding us behind the scenes. We can at times think that if we are going to succeed in the Christian life, then it's all up to the believer to make it happen. We have to deliver. And yet we think the Christian life is about us keeping ourselves in God's name, us persevering in the faith and pressing on. And it's true, don't get me wrong, we do need to keep ourselves in God's name. We, we, we are to, to keep on believing. But understand this, ultimately, it is God who works from above us, before us, and behind us to keep us in his name. When I was a small boy, I, uh, I saw my dad cutting the grass, and, and I just aspired to, to cut the grass with the lawnmower. And I didn't want to push that little plastic Fisher Price lawnmower, even though it made some really cool sounds. Now, my father knew I couldn't even begin to push a real lawnmower, but he let me try to mow mow the lawn anyway. And and so he started up the mower, and I put my hands on it. I I couldn't reach the the handle, so I I reached out for the little crossbar. It was right about eye height, and I I started to, to push the mower. And it was really moving. I was cutting the grass. I was doing it. But little did I know that my father was standing 
above me and behind me. And he was the one who was really pushing the lawnmower. My friends, this is a picture of what Jesus is praying for when he says, keep them in your name. It's a picture. It really is a picture of us living in this world with faith. But ultimately, it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are sovereignly pushing our lives forward in faith. And so, my friends, do you understand how much God is keeping you and caring for you, even when it seems like he isn't? Do you understand that God is actively keeping you in his name so that you do not fall away, but instead remain faithful until the day he calls you home? And do you know that God even allows storms and trials in our lives for his good and our good? He has a way of allowing storms in our lives so that that we are actually kept in him. God is good to send trials to discipline us, and to drive us back to him. And so you persevere in the faith through all kinds of temptations and trials in life. This is you doing this. But also know that while you keep the faith, it is ultimately our triune God who is keeping you. Now, this should bring joy to our souls, right? Which leads to our last point. The result Verse 13 is one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible. Look at what it says. Here's what Jesus says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have what? What is it that Jesus prays that he wants his disciples so, to have so badly that he prays for it by name right before he goes to die? Is it, is it rules to follow, that they would be good, dutiful Christians, that they would have this dreary Christian life? No, Jesus says, I speak, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy, the joy of the very Son of God himself in them. How can we not be astounded at this? Listen, it's true. Scripture tells us that Jesus was a man who was acquainted with grief and with sorrow. He wept at Lazarus' death. He cried over Jerusalem for the fact that, that the people of God had turned from God, and yet he was also full of joy. Don't you ever think that Jesus was not full of joy? The letter to the Hebrews states that Jesus, listen, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Understand this, my friends. Jesus understood the brokenness of this world that we experience every day better than any human being. And he's experienced the cruelty and the injustice of this world more than any person who has ever lived. And yet Jesus was full of joy. This is because Jesus' joy is not attached to his immediate circumstance, like ours often is. Jesus wants us to experience his joy every day, no matter our circumstances. Christians, of all the people on earth, we Christians should be joyful. But sadly, we are often lacking in joy. And so it's no surprise that Scripture says, 
commands us to be rejoicers. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, the whole letter is about joy and being joyful. And Paul's writing it from prison. But he has to command us in verse four, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, to rejoice not once but twice. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's sad, but Scripture has to command us to be joyful. So last week, our family had a last-minute opportunity to fly to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We had a free place to stay, and the airfare was included. Wow, pretty nice, huh? Yeah, we are definitely blessed. But do you know what troubled me much of the trip? I had to work every day, um, all of my family vacation, and I had to write the sermon. And uh, it caused me to mumble under my breath things like, you know, why, why can't I just have a vacation where I don't have to work? And so as I spent hours each day prepping this message, my family was off doing something fun. But then the irony of it hit me. Here I am. I'm supposed to preach a sermon how, on how Jesus wants us to have his joy no matter our circumstances. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. God has a sense of humor, right? Of all people, Christians should be the most joyful. Our lives have been flooded by the grace of God. Our sins have been forever forgiven. We have been treasured by God from before time began. We have belonged to Christ, and we do belong to Christ, who has overcome this world. I'm certain you can think of dozens of other reasons for for great joy in our lives. And so we need to ponder this then. An unjoyful Christian is an oxymoron, is it not? More than that, as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, he says this, listen, it is clearly dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he has done not to have this joy. Let me repeat that. It is dishonoring to Jesus and his work to not have his joy. And it makes sense, right? Jesus died not just for your sins, but for your joy. And so if you lack joy, then you're dishonoring him and his work for you. Jesus has secured every reason to be joyful under any circumstance. And he wants his joy to be fulfilled in us. Listen and allow this truth to to inform your conscience. God wants you to be joyful because God himself is infinitely joyful and he loves you and he desires to share his joy with you and in you. A good way to look at this is my brother, on on our vacation, my brother met us there and one day, yes, while I was working on this sermon, he he decided he was going to hike up um, the ski mountain. And it took him two hours to get to the top. And when he got there, he texted us saying, you have got to come up and see this view. He wanted to share the joy of, of he was experiencing with the 360-degree views of the, the Grand Tetons and the beautiful lush green valley below and, and um, all these beautiful uh, wildflowers that were only high up on the mountain that were surrounding him. So thankfully there was a gondola. Uh, It was operating and uh, for $99 I could take the whole family up. So we took a ride up and then we hiked up the final 600 
feet, and we rejoiced with my brother at the amazing view. My friends, Jesus is like that. He wants to take us through the hardships of life with his joy in us. Jesus loves you so much that he is not satisfied with how your life is going until his very joy is fulfilled in you. And so let me ask you, honestly, are you joyful? My friends, joy, not biblical knowledge, joy, not judging others, is is the litmus test for if Christ is alive in you, that you're living by grace and not living by law. And so let us ponder this gift of God's grace. Let us anchor our lives to Christ and experience his joy in us. Joy despite suffering. Joy in the midst of hardship. Joy, true joy, not some stevia substitute. And please understand this. This is not a joy we muster up. Jesus doesn't want us to say, oh, I need to be more joyful, but I got this. Don't worry. I'm going to double my effort and be more joyful. It just doesn't work that way, does it? Yes, it's important for us to recognize that we lack joy. But it's just as important to discern how we come, we become more joyful. And joy does not start with us. No, the source of our joy is Christ. And joy is a work of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit produces in us. And so it is, it is, it is in no sense self-generated. And so... How is it that we have this joy that surpasses all of our circumstances? My friends, it comes in no other way than looking to Christ and delighting in him and and recognize his his great love and passion for us. And, And we come to rejoice that he endured the cross and despised its shame for us. And the whole time he was it was joy that got him through it. We take joy that, that though this world is full of trials and hardships and rejections, we belong to Christ. We are being kept. We're being kept by none other than the Holy Trinity. And so, as we experience hardships and trials and suffering, as we live in this broken world, let us look up to Christ, who died not just for our sins, but for our joy and let his joy enter us and be fulfilled in us. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, these words we've listened to of our Savior are too good to be true, and yet they are true. Jesus, you treasure us. Uh, Jesus, you are joyful. You have kept your people and you are keeping your people and you will lose not one of them. And you did this so that your joy may be in us. May we recognize that we're not just saved from our sins, but we're given your joy, access to it. May we appropriate it as we gather this morning. Amen.